Section 32 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 20, 1582-1587, Part 3. The Earl had actually embarked at a small port in Sussex, when, his project having been betrayed to the government by the mercenary villainy of the master of the vessel and of one of his own servants, orders were issued for his detention, and he was brought back in custody and committed to the tower. The letter just quoted was then produced against him. It was declared to reflect on the justice of the country, and for the double offence of having written it, and of attempting to quit the kingdom without license, he underwent a long imprisonment, and was arbitrarily sentenced to a fine of one thousand pounds, which he proved his inability to pay. The barbarous tyranny which held his body in thraldom served at the same time to rivet more strongly upon his mind the fetters of that stern superstition which had gained dominion over him. The more he endured for his religion, the more awful and important did it appear in his eyes, while in proportion to the severity and tediousness of his sufferings from without, the scenery within became continually more cheerless and terrific, and learning to dread in a future world the prolonged operation of that principle of cruelty under which he groaned in this, he sought to avert its everlasting action by practising upon himself the expiatory rigours of asceticism. The sequel of his melancholy history we shall have occasion to contemplate hereafter. Thomas Percy, Earl of Northumberland, brother to that Earl who had suffered death on account of the Northern Rebellion, by his participation in which he had himself also incurred a fine, though afterwards remitted, was naturally exposed at this juncture to vehement suspicions. After some examinations before the council, cause was found for his committal to the tower, and here, according to the iniquitous practice of the age, he remained for a considerable time without being brought to trial. At length the public was informed that another prisoner, on a like account having been put to the torture to force disclosures, had revealed matters against the Earl of Northumberland amounting to treason, on which account he had thought fit to anticipate the sentence of the law by shooting himself through the heart. That the Earl was really the author of his own death was indeed proved before a coroner's jury by abundant and unexceptionable testimony, as well as by his deliberate precautions for making his lands descend to his son, and his indignant declaration that the Queen, on whom he bestowed a most opprobrious epithet, should never have his estate, though it may still bear a doubt whether a consciousness of guilt, despair of obtaining justice, or merely the misery of an indefinite captivity, were the motive of the rash act. But the Catholics, actuated by the true spirit of party, added without scruple the death of this nobleman to the, quote, foul and midnight murders, end quote, perpetrated within these gloomy walls. Meantime the opposition to popery, which had now become the reigning principle of English policy, was to be maintained on other ground, and with other weapons than those with which an inquisitorial high commission, or a fierce system of penal enactments, had armed the hands of religious intolerance, political jealousy, or private animosity, and all the more generous and adventurous spirits prepared with alacrity to draw the sword in the noble cause of Belgian independence, against the united tyranny and bigotry of the detestable Philip the Second. The death of that patriot hero, William Prince of Orange, by the hand of a fanatical assassin, had plunged his country in distress and dismay, and the States-General had again made an earnest tender of their sovereignty to Elizabeth. She once more declined it, from the same motives of caution and anxiety to avoid the imputation of ambitious encroachment on the rights of neighbouring princes, which had formerly determined her but more than ever aware how closely her own safety and welfare were connected with the successful resistance of these provinces, she now consented to send over an army to their succour, and to grant them supplies of money, in consideration of which several cautionary towns were put into her hands. 
of these flushing was one and elizabeth gratified at once the protestant zeal of philip sidney and his aspirations after military glory by appointing him its governor it was in november fifteen eighty five that he took possession of his charge meanwhile the earl of leicester whose haughty and grasping spirit led him to covet distinction and authority in every line was eagerly soliciting the supreme command of this important armament and in spite of the general mediocrity of his talents and his very slight experience in the art of war his partial mistress had the weakness to indulge him in this unreasonable and ill-advised pretension the title of general of the queen's auxiliaries in holland was conferred upon him and with it a command over the whole english navy paramount to that of the lord high admiral himself he landed at flushing and was received first by its governor and afterwards by the states of holland and zealand with the highest honours and with the most magnificent festivities which it was in their power to exhibit a splendid band of youthful nobility followed in his train the foremost of them all was his stepson robert earl of essex now in his nineteenth year who had already made his appearance at court and experienced from her majesty a reception which clearly prognosticated to such as were conversant in the ways of the court the height of favour to which he was predestined it was highly characteristic of the jealous haughtiness of elizabeth's temper that the extraordinary honours lavished by the states upon leicester instantly awakened her utmost indignation she regarded them as too high for any subject even for him who enjoyed the first place in her royal favour whom she had invested with an amplitude of authority quite unexampled and who represented herself in the council of the states-general she expressed her anger in a tone which made both leicester and the belgians tremble and the explanations and humble submissions of both parties were found scarcely sufficient to appease her at the same time the incapacity and misconduct of leicester as a commander were daily becoming more conspicuous and offensive in the eyes of the dutch authorities and the most serious evils would immediately have ensued but for the prudence the magnanimity the conciliating behaviour and the strenuous exertions by which his admirable nephew laboured unceasingly to remedy his vices and cover his deficiencies the brilliant valour of the english troops and particularly of the young nobility and gentry who led them on was conspicuous in every encounter but the want of a chief able to cope with that accomplished general the prince of parma precluded them from effecting any important object philip sidney distinguished himself by a well-conducted surprise of the town of axel and received in reward among a number of others the honour of knighthood from the hands of his uncle afterwards having made an attack with the horse under his command on a reinforcement which the enemy was attempting to throw into zutphen a hot action ensued in which though the advantage remained with the english it was dearly purchased by the blood of their gallant leader who received a shot above the knee which after sixteen days of acute suffering brought his valuable life to its termination thus perished at the age of thirty-two sir philip sidney the pride and pattern of his time the theme of song the favourite of english story the beautiful anecdote of his resigning to the dying soldier the draught of water with which he was about to quench his thirst as he rode faint and bleeding from the fatal field is told to every child and inspires a love and reverence for his name which never ceases to cling about the hearts of his countrymen he is regarded as the most perfect example which english history affords of the preux chevalier and is named in parallel with the spotless and fearless bayard the glory of frenchmen whom he excelled in all the accomplishments of peace as much as the other exceeded him in the number and splendour of his military achievements the demonstrations of grief for his loss and the honours paid to his memory went far beyond all former example and appeared to exceed what belonged to a private citizen the court went into mourning for him and his remains received a magnificent funeral in st paul's the united provinces having in vain requested permission to inter him at their own expense with the promise that he should have as fair a tomb as any prince in christendom 
Elizabeth always remembered him with affection and regret. Cambridge and Oxford published three volumes of Lacrimae on the melancholy event. Spencer in verse, and Camden in prose, commemorated and deplored their friend and patron. A crowd of humbler contemporaries pressed emulously forward to offer up their might of panegyric and lamentation, and it would be endless to enumerate the poets and other writers of later times who have celebrated in various forms the name of Sidney. Foreigners of the highest distinction claimed a share in the general sentiment. Duplessis Mornay condoled with Walsingham on the loss of his incomparable son-in-law in terms of the deepest sorrow. Count Hohenlohe passionately bewailed his friend and fellow-soldier, to whose representations and intercessions he had sacrificed his just indignation against the proceedings of Leicester. Even the hard heart of Philip II was touched by the untimely fate of his godson, though slain in bearing arms against him. We are told that on the next tilt-day after the last wife of the Earl of Leicester had borne him a son, Sidney appeared with a shield on which was the word, Speravi dashed through. This anecdote, if indeed the illusion of the motto be rightly explained, which it is difficult to believe, would serve to show how publicly he had been regarded, both by himself and others, as the heir of his all-powerful uncle. The death of this child, on which occasion adulatory verses were produced by the University of Cambridge, restored Sidney, the year before his death, to this brilliant expectancy, and it cannot reasonably be doubted that the academic honours paid to his memory were, like the court-mourning, an homage to the power of the living rather than the virtues of the dead. But though he should be judged to have owed to his connection with a royal favourite much of his contemporary celebrity, and even in some measure his enduring fame, no candid estimator will suffice himself to be hurried, under an idea of correcting the former partiality of fortune, into the clear injustice of denying to this accomplished character a just title to the esteem and admiration of posterity. On the contrary, it will be considered that the very circumstances which rendered him so early conspicuous would also expose him to the shafts of malice and envy, and that if his spirit had not been in reality noble, and his conduct irreproachable, it would have exceeded all the power of Leicester to shield the reputation of his nephew against attacks similar to those from which he had found it impractical to defend his own. Philip Sidney was educated by the cares of a wise and excellent father in the purest and most elevated moral principles and in the best learning of the age. A letter of advice addressed to him by this exemplary parent at the age of twelve fully exemplifies both the laudable solicitude of Sir Henry respecting his future character and the soundness of his views and maxims. In the character of his son, as advancing to manhood, he saw his hopes exceeded and his prayers fulfilled. Nothing could be more correct than his conduct, more laudable than his pursuits, while on his travels. Young as he was, he merited the friendship of Hubert Languet. He also gained just and high reputation for the manner in which he acquitted himself of an embassy to the Protestant princes of Germany, though somewhat of the ostentation and family pride of a Dudley was apparent in the port which he thought it necessary to assume on the occasion. After his return he commenced the life of a courtier, and that indiscriminate thirst for glory which was in some measure the foible of his character led him into an ostentatious profusion, which by involving his affairs rendered it necessary for him to solicit the pecuniary favours of Her Majesty, and to earn them by some acts of adulation unworthy of his spirit. For all these, however, he made large amends by his noble letter against the French marriage. He afterwards took up, with a zeal and ability highly honourable to his heart and his head, the defence of his father, accused, but finally acquitted, of some stretches of power as Lord Deputy of Ireland. This business involved him in disputes with the Earl of Ormond, his father's enemy, who seems to have generously overlooked provocations which might have led to more serious consequences in consideration of the filial feelings of his youthful adversary. These indications of a bold and forward spirit, 
appear however to have somewhat injured him in the mind of her majesty his advancement by no means kept pace either with his wishes or his wants and a subsequent quarrel with the earl of oxford in which he refused to make the concessions required by the queen reminding her at the same time that it had been her father's policy and ought to be hers rather to countenance the gentry against the arrogance of the great nobles than the contrary sent him in disgust from court retiring to wilton the seat of his brother-in-law the earl of pembroke he composed the arcadia this work he never revised or completed it was published after his death probably contrary to his orders and it is of a kind long since obsolete under all these disadvantages however though faulty in plan and as a whole tedious this romance has been found to exhibit extensive learning a poetical cast of imagination nice discrimination of character and what is far more a fervour of eloquence in the cause of virtue a heroism of sentiment and purity of thought which stamp it for the offspring of a noble mind which evince that the workman was superior to his work but the world reabsorbed him and baffled at court he meditated in correspondence with one of his favourite mottoes aut viam invenium aut facium to join one of the almost piratical expeditions of drake against the spanish settlements perhaps he might then be diverted from his design by the strong and kind warning of his true friend Languet, quote, to beware lest the thirst of lucre should creep into a mind which had hitherto admitted nothing but the love of truth and an anxiety to deserve well of all men End quote. after the death of this monitor however he engaged in a second seam of this very questionable nature, and was only prevented from embarking by the arrival of the Queen's peremptory orders for his return to court, and that of Fulk Greville who accompanied him. It would certainly be difficult to defend in point of dignity and consistency his conspicuous appearance, as formerly recorded, at the triumph held in honour of the French embassy, or his attendance upon the Duke of Anjou on his return to the Netherlands. The story of his nomination to the throne of Poland deserves little regard it is certain that such an elevation was never within his possibilities of attainment his reputation on the continent was however extremely high don john of austria himself esteemed him the great prince of orange corresponded with him as a real friend and duplessis mornay solicited his good offices on behalf of the french protestants nothing but the highest praise is due to his conduct in holland to the valour of a knight-errant he added the best virtues of a commander and counsellor leicester himself apprehended that it would be scarcely possible for him to sustain his high post without the countenance and assistance of his beloved nephew and the event showed that he was right his death was worthy of the best parts of his life he showed himself to the last devout courageous and serene his wife the beautiful daughter of walsingham his brother robert to whom he had performed the part rather of an anxious and indulgent parent than of a brother and many sorrowing friends surrounded his bed their grief was beyond a doubt sincere and poignant as well as that of the many persons of letters and of worth who gloried in his friendship and flourished by his bountiful patronage on the whole though justice claims the admission that the character of sidney was not entirely free from the faults most incident to his age and station and that neither as a writer a scholar a soldier or a statesman in all which characters during the course of his short life he appeared and appeared with distinction is he yet entitled to the highest rank it may, however, be firmly maintained that, as a man, an accomplished and high-souled man, he had among his contemporary countrymen neither equal nor competitor. Such was the verdict in his own times not of flatterers only, or friends, but of England, of Europe. Such is the title of merit under which the historian may enroll him, with confidence and with complacency, among the illustrious few whose name and example still serve to kindle in the bosom of youth the animating glow of virtuous emulation leicester never appears in an amiable light except in connection with his nephew 
for whom his affection was not only sincere but ardent. A few extracts from a letter written by him to Sir Thomas Heneage, captain of the Queen's Guards, giving an account of the action in which Sidney received his mortal wound, will illustrate this remark, while it records the gallant exploits of several of his companions in arms. After relating that Sir Philip had gone out with a party to intercept a convoy of the enemies, he adds, quote, Many of our horses were hurt and killed, among which was my nephew's own. He went and changed to another, and would needs to the charge again, and once passed those musketeers, where he received a sore wound upon his thigh, three fingers above his knee, the bone broken quite in pieces. But for which chance God did send such a day as I think was never many years seen, so few against so many." The Earl then enumerates the other commanders and distinguished persons engaged in the action. Colonel Norris, the Earl of Essex, Sir Thomas Perrault, quote, and my unfortunate Philip, with Sir William Russell and diverse gentlemen, and not one hurt but only my nephew. They killed four of their enemies' chief leaders, and carried the valiant Count Hannibal Gonzaga away with them upon a horse. Also took Captain George Cressier, the principal soldier of the camp, and captain of all the Albanese. My Lord Willoughby overthrew him at the first encounter, man and horse. The gentleman did acknowledge it himself. There is not a properer gentleman in the world towards than this Lord Willoughby is. But I can hardly praise one more than another, they all did so well. Yet every one had his horse killed or hurt and it was thought very strange that Sir William Stanley, with three hundred of his men, should pass, in spite of so many muskets, such troops of horse three several times, making them remove their ground, and to return with no more loss than he did. Albeit, I must say it, it was too much loss for me, for this young man, he was my greatest comfort, next her majesty, of all the world, and if I could buy his life with all I have, to my shirt I would give it. How God will dispose of him I know not, but fear I must needs greatly the worst." the blow in so dangerous a place and so great, yet did I never hear of any man that did abide the dressing and setting of his bones better than he did, and he was carried afterwards in my barge to Arnheim, and I fear this day he is still of good heart, and comforteth all about him as much as may be. God of his mercy grant me his life, which I cannot but doubt of greatly. I was abroad that time in the field giving some order to supply that business which did endure almost two hours in continual fight, and meeting Philip coming upon his horseback, not a little to my grief but I would you had stood by to hear his most loyal speeches to Her Majesty, his constant mind to the cause, his loving care over me, and his most resolute determination for death, not one jot appalled for his blow, which is the most grievous I ever saw with such a bullet. Riding so a long mile and a half upon his horse, ere he came to the camp, not ceasing to speak still of Her Majesty, being glad if his hurt and death might any way honour Her Majesty, for hers he was whilst he lived, and God's he was sure to be if he died." prayed all men to think the cause was as well her majesty's as the country's, and not to be discouraged, for you have seen such success as may encourage us all, and this my hurt is the ordinance of God by the half of the war. Well, I pray God, if it be his will, save me his life, even as well for her majesty's service's sake as for mine own comfort." Sir Henry Sidney was spared the anguish of following such a son to the grave, having himself quitted the scene a few months before. It was in 1578 that he received orders to resign the government of Ireland, having become obnoxious to the gentlemen of the English Pale by his rigour in levying certain assessments for the maintenance of troops and the expenses of his own household, which they affirmed to be illegally imposed. There is every reason to believe that their complaint was well founded. But Elizabeth, refusing as usual to allow her prerogative to be touched, imprisoned several Irish lawyers, who came to England to appeal against the tax and Sir Henry, being able to prove that he had royal warrant for what he had done, was finally exonerated by the Privy Council from all the charges which had been preferred against him, 
and retained to the last his office of Lord President of Wales. The sound judgment of Sir Henry Sidney taught him that his near connection with the Earl of Leicester had its dangers as well as its advantages, and observing the turn for show and expense with which it served to inspire the younger members of his family, he would frequently enjoin them, quote, to consider more whose sons than whose nephews they were, end quote. In fact, he was not able to lay up fortunes for them. The offices he held were higher in dignity than emolument. His spirit was noble and munificent, and the following, among other anecdotes, may serve to show that he himself was not averse to a certain degree of parade, at least on particular occasions. The Queen, standing once at a window of her palace at Hampton Court, saw a gentleman approach escorted by two hundred attendants on horseback, and turning to her courtiers she asked with some surprise who this might be but on being informed that it was Sir Henry Sidney, her Lord Deputy of Ireland and President of Wales, she answered, quote, And he may well do it, for he has two of the best offices in my kingdom. The following letter, addressed to Sir Henry as Lord President of Wales, discloses an additional trait of his character, which cannot fail to recommend him still more to the esteem of a humane and enlightened age. His reluctance, namely, to lend his concurrence to the measures of religious persecution which the Queen and her bishops now urged upon all persons in authority as their incumbent duty. Sir Francis Walsingham to Sir H. Sidney, Lord President of Wales. Quote, My very good Lord, My lords of late calling here to remembrance the commission that was more than a year ago given out to your Lordship and certain others for the reformation of the recusants and obstinate persons in religion, within Wales and the marches thereof, marvelled very much that in all this time they have heard of nothing done by you and the rest. And truly, my lord, the necessity of this time requiring so greatly to have these kind of men diligently and sharply proceeded against, there will be here a very hard construction be made, I fear me, of you, to retain with you the said commission so long doing no good therein. Of late now I received your lordship's letter touching such persons as you think meet to have the custody and oversight of Montgomery Castle, by which it appeareth you have begun in your present journeys in Wales to do somewhat in causes of religion, but having a special commission for that purpose, in which are named special and very apt persons to join with you in those matters, it will be thought strange to my lords to hear of your proceeding in those causes without their assistance, and therefore, to the end their lordships should conceive no otherwise than well of your dealing without them, I have forborne to acquaint them with our late letter, wishing your lordship, for the better handling and success of those matters in religion, you called unto you the Bishop of Worcester, Mr. Phillips, and certain others specially named in the commission. They will, I am sure, be glad to wait on you in so good a service, and your proceeding together with them in these matters will be better allowed of here, etc. P.S. Your Lordship had need to walk warily, for your doings are narrowly observed, and Her Majesty is apt to give ear to any that shall ill you. Great hold is taken by your enemies for neglecting the execution of this commission. Oatlands, August ninth, 1580. Leicester, soon after the death of his nephew, placed his army in winter quarters, having effected no one object of importance. The states remonstrated with him in strong terms on the various and grievous abuses of his administration. He answered them in the tone of graciousness and conciliation which it suited his purpose to assume, and publicly surrendering up to them the whole apparent authority of the provinces, whilst by a secret act of restriction he in fact retained for himself full command over all the governors of towns and provinces, he set sail for England. Elizabeth received her favourite with her usual complacency, either because his abject submissions had in reality succeeded in banishing from her mind all resentment of his conduct in Holland, or because she required the support of his long-tried counsels under the awful responsibilities of that impending conflict with the whole collected force of the Spanish monarchy for which she felt herself summoned to prepare. 
the king of denmark astonished to behold a princess of elizabeth's experienced caution involving herself with seeming indifference in peril so great and so apparent exclaimed that she had now taken the diadem from her brow to place it on the doubtful cast of war and trembling for the fate of his friend and ally he dispatched an ambassador in haste to offer her his mediation for the adjustment of all differences arising out of the revolt of the netherlands but elizabeth firmly though with thanks declined all overtures towards a reconciliation with a sovereign whom she now recognized as her implacable and determined foe she was far however from despising the danger which she braved and with a prudence and diligence equal to her fortitude she had begun to assemble and put in action all her means internal and external of defence and annoyance she linked herself still more closely by benefits and promises with the prince of conde chief of the huguenots now in arms against the league or catholic association formed in france under the auspices of the king of spain with the king of scots also she entered into an intimate alliance and she had previously secured the friendship of all the protestant princes of germany and the northern powers of europe she now openly avowed the enterprises of drake which she had hitherto only encouraged underhand or on certain pretexts of retaliation and she sent him with a fleet of twenty-one ships carrying above eleven thousand soldiers to make war upon the spanish settlements in the west indies but if all these measures seemed likely to afford her kingdom sufficient means of protection against the attacks of a foreign enemy it was difficult for her to regard her own person as equally well secured against the dark conspiracies of her catholic subjects instigated as they were by the sanguinary maxims of the romish see fostered by the atrocious activity of the emissaries of philip and sanctioned by the authority of the queen of scots to whom homage was rendered by her party as rightful sovereign of the british isles during the festival of easter fifteen eighty six some english priests of the seminary at Rennes had encouraged a fanatical soldier named savage to vow the death of the queen about the same time ballard also a priest of this seminary was concerting in france with mendoza and the fugitive lord paget the means of procuring an invasion of the country during the absence of its best troops in flanders repairing to england ballard communicated both these schemes to anthony babington a gentleman who had been gained over on a visit to france by the bishop of glasgow mary's ambassador there and whose vehement attachment to her cause had rendered him capable of any enterprise however criminal or desperate for her deliverance babington entered into both plots with eagerness but he suggested that so essential a part of the action as the assassination of the queen ought not to be entrusted to one adventurer and he lost no time in associating five others in the vow of savage himself undertaking the part of setting free the captive mary with her he had previously been in correspondence having frequently taken the charge of transmitting to her by secret channels her letters from france and he immediately imparted to her this new design for her restoration to liberty and advancement to the english throne there is full evidence that mary approved it in all its parts that in several successive letters she gave babington counsels or directions relative to its execution and that she promised to the perpetrators of the murder of elizabeth every reward which it should hereafter be in her power to bestow all this time the vigilant eye of walsingham was secretly fixed on the secure conspirators he held a thread which vibrated to their every motion and he was patiently awaiting the moment of their complete entanglement to spring forth and seize his victims to the queen and to her only he communicated the daily intelligence which he received from a spy who had introduced himself into all their secrets and elizabeth had the firmness to hasten nothing though a picture was actually shown her in which the six assassins had absurdly caused themselves to be represented with a motto underneath intimating their common design these dreadful visages remained however so perfectly impressed on her memory that she immediately recognized one of the conspirators who had approached very near her person as she was one day walking in her garden 
she had the intrepidity to fix him with a look which daunted him and afterwards turning to her captain of the guards she remarked that she was well guarded not having a single armed man at the time about her at length walsingham judged it time to interpose and rescue his sovereign from her perilous situation ballard was first seized and soon after babington and his associates all overcome by terror or allured by vain hopes severally and voluntarily confessed their guilt and accused their accomplices the nation was justly exasperated against the partakers in a plot which comprised foreign invasion domestic insurrection the assassination of a beloved sovereign the elevation to the throne of her feared and hated rival and the restoration of popery the traitors suffered notwithstanding the interest which the extreme youth and good moral characters of most or all of them were formed to inspire amid the execrations of the protestant spectators but what was to be the fate of that quote unquote, pretender to the crown on whose behalf and with whose privity this foul conspiracy had been entered into and who was by the late statute passed with a view to this very case liable to condign punishment this was now the important question which awaited the decision of elizabeth and divided the judgments of her most confidential counsellors some advised that the royal captive should be spared the ignominy of any public proceeding but that her attendants should be removed and her custody rendered so severe as to preclude all possibility of her renewing her pestilent intrigues leicester in conformity with the baseness and atrocity of his character is related to have suggested the employment of treachery against the life of a prisoner whom it appeared equally dangerous to spare or to punish and to have sent a divine to convince walsingham of the lawfulness of taking her off by poison but that minister rejected the proposal with abhorrence and concurred with the majority of the council in urging the queen to bring her without fear or scruple to an open trial in favour of this measure elizabeth at length decided and steps were taken accordingly by means of well-concerted precautions mary had been kept in total ignorance of the apprehension of the conspirators till their confessions had been made and their fates decided a gentleman was then sent to her from the court to announce that all was discovered it was just as she had mounted her horse to take her usual exercise with her keepers that this alarming message was delivered to her and for obvious reasons she was compelled to proceed on her excursion instead of returning as she desired to her chamber meantime all her papers were seized sealed up and conveyed to the queen amongst them were letters from a large proportion of the nobility and other leading characters of the english court filled with expressions of attachment to the person of the queen of scots and sympathy in her misfortunes not unmixed in all probability with severe reflections on the conduct of her rival and oppressor all these elizabeth perused and no doubt stored up in her memory but her good sense and prudence supplied on this occasion the place of magnanimity and well knowing that the conscious fears of the writers would be ample security for their future conduct she buried in lasting silence and apparent oblivion all the discoveries which had reached her through this channel the principal domestics of mary were now apprehended and committed to different keepers and now and curl her two secretaries were sent prisoners to london she herself was immediately removed from tutbury and conveyed with a great attendance of the neighbouring gentry and with pauses at several noblemen's houses by the way to the strong castle of fotheringay in northamptonshire this part of the business was safely and prudently conducted by sir amias paulet and he received for his encouragement and reward the following characteristic letter subscribed by the hand of her majesty and surely of her own inditing Quote, to my faithful amias amias my most careful servant god reward thee treblefold in the double for thy most troublesome charge so well discharged if you knew my amias how kindly besides dutifully my grateful heart accepteth your double labours and faithful actions your wise orders and safe conduct performed in so dangerous and crafty a charge it would ease your troubles and rejoice your heart and which i charge you to carry this most just thought 
that I cannot balance in any weight of my judgment the value I prize you at, and suppose no treasure to countervail such a faith, and condemn myself in that fault which I have committed, if I reward not such deserts. Yea, let me lack when I have most need, if I acknowledge not such a merit with a reward, non omnibus datum. But let your wicked mistress know how with hearty sorrow her vile deserts compel those orders, and bid her from me ask God forgiveness for her treacherous dealing toward the savour of her life many years, to the intolerable peril of her own. And yet not content with so many forgivenesses, must fall again so horribly, far passing a woman, much more a princess. Instead of accusing thereof, not one can serve, it being so plainly confessed by the authors of my guiltless death. Let repentance take place, and let not the fiend possess so as her best part be lost which I pray, with hands lifted up to him that may both save and spill, with my loving adieu and prayer for thy long life, your assured and loving sovereign in heart, by good desert induced, Elizabeth R. Soon after the arrival of Mary at Fotheringay, Elizabeth, according to the provisions of the late Act, issued out a commission to forty noblemen and privy councillors, empowering them to try and pass sentence upon Mary, daughter and heir of King James V, and late Queen of Scots for it was thus that she was designated, with the view of intimating to her that she was no longer to be regarded as possessing the rights of a sovereign princess. Thirty-six of the commissioners repaired immediately to Fotheringay, where they arrived on October ninth, 1586, and cited Mary to appear before them. This summons she refused to obey, on the double ground that as an absolute princess she was free from all human jurisdiction, since kings only could be her peers, and that having been detained in England as a prisoner, she had not enjoyed the protection of the laws, and consequently ought not in equity to be regarded as amenable to their sentence. Weighty as these objections may appear, the commissioners refused to admit them, and declared that they would proceed to judge her by default. This menace she at first disregarded, but soon after, overcome by the artful representations of Hatton on the inferences which must inevitably be drawn from her refusal to justify herself for the satisfaction of a princess who had declared that she desired nothing so much as the establishment of her innocence, she changed her mind and consented to plead none of her papers were restored, no counsel was assigned her, and her request that her two secretaries, whose evidence was principally relied on by the prosecutors, might be confronted with her, was denied. But all these were hardships customarily inflicted on prisoners accused of high treason, and it does not appear that, with respect to its forms and modes of proceedings, Mary had cause to complain that her trial was other than a regular and legal one. End of section 32